come and sing just before you hear some preaching about money. <laughs> Amen. Okay, handouts. Anybody need a handout or a booklet? Crayons to go with it? Anything like that? series of the sequential priority of the biblical stewardship. Uh, you know there's probably been a lot in the series uh, if you've been here for every message that uh, some of it may be new, some of it may be old, and uh, all of it requires a little bit of discipline to make effective uh, use of in our lives. We're going to be looking at page 18 if you still have your booklet tonight. I'll ask you the notes there. And uh, I'm going to remind us here at the beginning of the five principles that we're looking at, or we have looked at. And again, they're in the order of first mention in Scripture. And that's what gives us the prioritization here. That's how we know what to do first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, so to speak. So in Genesis chapter 1, we found the first principle. And that first principle is that God is a God of order, sequence, and priority. And the application of that is giving back to God is our first financial priority and privilege. I got to thinking this week, uh, that principle can be accomplished by every person in every economy in every country. Because if you have any increase, there is a portion that you can give it. So you know what that means for us? No excuse. Yeah. <laughs> no excuse. Well, we can come up with some excuses, but no good excuse. Maybe we ought to put it that way. The second uh, principle comes from Genesis chapter 2. And that is that God deems the family unit as the foundation stone of his plan for mankind. And therefore, saving or setting aside to protect one's family is our second financial priority and privilege. And once again, everyone is capable of doing that. Yeah. You say, well, I don't have any money left after I've done. Well, that's the point. We're not talking about making decisions about what you have left. We're talking about how to use your money from the beginning. First, giving back to God. Second, saving to protect your family. So everybody can do it. Now, we may have made a financial mess of our life, and there's some remedial action necessary. Uh, we can do that. But I would encourage you that as you remedy the problems that you've created in your life, at least start the discipline of saving something. Yeah. You listen to Dave Ramsey. He talks about putting aside for that emergency fund all the time. Well, most people that are in financial difficulty have an emergency every day. Some, uh, somebody I used to listen to a lot said, uh, you save for the rainy day, but it rains every Tuesday. <laughs> That's kind of how it works when we get out of control. So. Then we move to Genesis chapter 6 through the book of Numbers. That's really the stories of the patriarchs. And we find our third principle and uh, third priority, and that is this. God wants our life choices to bring glory to him. 
the way we use our money or spending uh, can either bring glory or shame to the name of God. And protecting and preserving our testimony by being timely, honest, and just with our creditors ought to be a priority in our life. You know, integrity is important. Trust is important. Your testimony is important. Uh, if, if somebody doesn't trust you, they won't believe you. Wow. Uh, if you have no integrity, people are not interested in hearing what you have to say. And if you have a bad testimony, your influence is zero on the meter. So it's very important to protect your testimony. Uh, Solomon said it this way, even a child is known by his wishes. What are you known for in the area of finances? Man, that's a challenging question sometimes. And then we looked at the fourth priority, and that came from Exodus through Deuteronomy. The fourth principle is that, uh, uh, that, that God, we need to be mindful and generous toward the needs of others. God is, is concerned and wants us to help those who are less fortunate. And uh, there's plenty of, of those less fortunate people to go around. Uh, one thing I didn't mention when we talked about that last week is uh, God doesn't want you to help every poor person. You know, just about every street corner anymore, there's somebody holding up a sign. And you feel bad for them. They look like they're in great need. And uh, a lot of times they're trying to get money for something that you wouldn't give them money for, so now you're looking to do uh, drug money or often being that way, for example. So you want to make sure that you're walking with God and that God leads you to help a poor person. And when you're trusting the Lord to, to make that need known, it's unlikely that you'll make a, a mistake. The fifth principle is what we're going to look at tonight. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's God wants his, God wants to bless his people who obey. So kind of a summary statement I made is this. After I fulfill my biblical obligations to God, my family, and my creditors, and have considered the needs of others, I am free to enjoy the many blessings of, that God has granted me. Amen. You know, sometimes uh, people who have wealth, believers who have wealth, feel guilty about having it. Uh, that shouldn't be the case unless you've done something wrong to get it. You know, oftentimes when I'm studying the Bible, I, I try to put myself into a situation that the people I'm reading about are experiencing, and that often leads to a, a, a question of, you know, what Bible characters would I like to be like, and what Bible characters would I not want to be like? How many of you would like to be like Job? the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. You didn't want that? You say, well, I wouldn't want to go through the first part of Job. Well, well be careful what you wish, I guess. It's kind of the idea here, but the point is that God blessed Job. 
because Job was obedient and faithful to God. We find in the book of wisdom, which was left out of your notes, but I think we're going to be able to put it up on the screen tonight, Proverbs 3, 5 through 10. But the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Amen? Amen. How many of you believe that? Amen. Praise the Lord. Oh, let's keep reading. Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. How many of you believe that? Some of you getting a little nervous. <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I really wouldn't. Who would? Right? Well, the Bible says here, if you are not wise in your own eyes, and you fear the Lord and depart from evil, it shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Hey, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Hey, is this the prosperity gospel? Hmm, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, this, this verse tells me that if I honor the Lord, with all that I have, and with the fruit of my increase, he's going to bless me in a way that I can't even hardly imagine. Now, what's the difference between this and the prosperity gospel you might hear on television? And the answer is the motive that we have. The motive behind our activity here. The difference being some people think they can manipulate God for their own benefit. If you think that, oh, you're sadly mistaken, my friend. On the other hand, we can honor and glorify God by how we behave and what we desire. And by the way, that's the criteria for the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know that? Of what sort our things are, it says. The motivation behind what we have done and what we have given. So the book of the Old, the Old Testament, the book of wisdom, and the New Testament also teaches this same principle. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Here's Pastor Timothy getting instruction from the Apostle Paul, and Paul tells Timothy, as you carry out your role as a pastor, Timothy, he said, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Did you get that? Paul is telling Timothy, look, pastor, you need to address the issue of money with the people in your church that have riches. The pastor would have cringed when he heard that. Most pastors get a little nervous when they preach about money. You know why? Because they don't want to be perceived by the people as being after their money. And so it's easy to avoid the topic. But there's a lot written in the Bible about this issue. And it's a very important issue for all of us at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we need to learn this stuff. We need to understand what the Bible teaches and how it impacts our daily life. And 
how we can make application of it to the context in which we find ourselves at any point in our lives. I'm going to have more to say on, on that verse uh, in a little bit. So the application here is we manage our abundance to the glory of God, rightly enjoying God's material blessings. How can we do that? Well, I think that the simple explanation and how it's possible is this. If I'm eternally minded with the abundance God gives me, I'm going to be able to honor him. If I'm temporal-minded, that is, all I'm thinking about is me and my life on planet Earth. If, if that's all I'm thinking about when I have material wealth, uh, I'm probably not going to do a good job of honoring God. Me first doesn't honor God. Okay? And that's illustrated for us a number of ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 1, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither thou goest to possess it. Here's Moses giving instruction to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he says in verse 2, That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that, and that thy days may be prolonged. Deuteronomy 6.3 Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, and here's why, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. The nation would grow exponentially, and the people would have all they need and more. You know what we get from that passage? God wants to bless his children. He wants to bless his children. Now, most of the folks in here are of the age that you've had children or have children. Or at least you've been around children. <laughs> Some. Isn't it amazing how you want to bless your kids? I mean, I want my kids to do well. I almost didn't come to church tonight. You know why? Uh, about 30 minutes before I left, my granddaughter and her husband and our two great-grandchildren arrived at our house. And we have a week plan for them that's going to be, well, a little different than their normal week. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa and uh, great-grandma and great-grandpa, we want to be a great blessing to our granddaughter and to her family uh, we love them. We love our kids. We love our grandchildren. You know what? God loves us even more. Amen. He wants to bless us. And sometimes we just we keep a kind of a perverted, guilty view that God's a, a grumpy old man up in heaven and he's just looking for us to mess up. That's not who God is. Amen. He loves his children. Here Moses is reminding the people that, and by the way, I believe he restates the Ten Commandments in this passage. He exhorts them to obedience. He promises blessing. But he also says this obedience is going to be judged. Look, God wants us to have an abundant life. Jesus told us that. 
He wants to bless us as his children. And it's not like we have to do something to earn the blessing. He wants to bless us because of who we are. However, we can do something that tells you something. And that's just obedience. You see, I can't do something to manipulate God to give more. But I can do something to ensure that I don't mess up God's will. I can obey him. I can put him first. If he's first and foremost in our thinking, then it's, it's highly likely that we're going to enjoy the blessings given. This is also encouraged in the book of Wisdom or the book of Proverbs. I think I've taught this verse a number of different times, not only in this series, but listen close to Proverbs 21, verse 5. I'm, I'm going to dig into it a little bit for you, too. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty, only to want. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? The thoughts here, the word thoughts is the word fabrications or plans. So what he's saying here is the, the plans of the diligent. These are people that are diligent about knowing the will of God and doing the will of God. The thoughts or the plans or the fabrications of the diligent tend to plenteousness. Oh, I left out a, a word. Tend only to plenteousness or profit. When you do it God's way, it always leads to profit. Amen. Yep. You say, there goes that prosperity gospel stuff again. No, this is, uh, this is just what the Bible says. Then he says, but everyone that is hasty, only to one. It's like, oh, I, yeah, I know, I know, God, I know what you want me to do, but I'm, I've got a better idea. Yeah. And we, we do it our way, and that only leads to want or failure is the idea there. So do we believe it? Yes. Do we behave it? Big difference, isn't it? See, so much of what we've been learning in this series isn't new to us belief-wise, but it is a challenge to us believers. Are we going to live the truth or just know what the truth says? There's a big difference. Yeah. You know, you can look across the breadth of Christianity in the world today and you can see that. People that have a, a nominal testimony of faith in Christ, but make no application of, of the word of God to their life. It's quite different than somebody who makes application of the truth to their life. It's also confirmed in New Testament in 1 Timothy. We just looked at the passage. We're going to dig into this a little bit more now. God wants to, to bless his people who obey. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. You might want to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6 because if you write in the margin or underline stuff, there's some things in here that I, I think are just really rich for us to understand. He says in verse 17, again, this is 
the Apostle Paul telling Pastor Timothy how to minister in his congregation. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Hmm. It doesn't seem too complicated of a verse to me. Let's, let's look at what he addresses here in this passage. In verse 17, he's addressing the people's attitude about wealth. He says, your mindset or your attitude about wealth is important. He says, first of all, in a little phrase here, don't be high-minded. The idea is don't let wealth make you arrogant. Or don't let wealth cause you to have a high estimation of who you are. Because all we really are is dirty, rotten sinners saved by the grace of God. Being a rich, dirty, rotten sinner saved by the grace of God doesn't make me a better person. Doesn't make you a better person either. So don't let wealth puff you up is the idea there. And then secondly, he says, don't trust in uncertain riches. Don't let your wealth be the source of your dependence or confidence. Uh, it's God that gives us the resources. Let's keep our faith and trust in God. And that's what he says here. <clears throat> keep your trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I, I love the way that, that uh, Paul says this here. Keep your trust, which is hard. Keep your trust in the living God. And then he reminds us about who God is. He's, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. He loves us. He wants to bless us. So trust him. Let your confidence, let your dependence be in God. I read an interesting statement about this passage. It says, riches are given for use, not for storage. The moment we begin to selfishly store them, we begin to trust in them. Money is a circulating medium, and its true value is in its wise and judicious circulation. Our use of money is part of our education in life and needs as much care and thought as the business that produces it. God only, and not wealth, maintains the world. Riches not properly used only make people proud and lazy. To trust in riches is committing ourselves to great uncertainty. Boy, you know, there's been a lot of people that have learned that lesson the last several weeks. I mean, uh, I can remember a, a day in my life when we thought just by being an American that, you know, all the stability a person could possibly want financially. Well, that's changed, hasn't it? So he says in verse 17, address their attitude. And then in verse 18, he says, address their actions. He says that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. There's four little phrases in here that talk about the activity that people with riches are to have in this life. He says, first of all, that they do good. And the idea here is that they use that wealth to work good deeds. Use your wealth for things that are virtuous, according to the, the word of God. And then he says, be rich in good works. 
the idea, she you say, well, that sounds a lot like the first little phrase. It does, but the idea here is that this is a learned behavior. To be rich in good works is not something that comes naturally to us. It's, in fact, unnatural for us. I used last week a verse from Proverbs 19. I'll use the same verse this week to illustrate this point. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth to the Lord, and that which he lendeth will he pay him again. The idea here of, of uh, a learned behavior would be this. As I'm walking through life and I see somebody with a need and I have the ability to meet that need and I reach out and I empty my hands in order to meet that need, as I'm drawing my hands back, I, I'm kind of saying to myself, man, that, that's, uh, I enjoy doing that. And so the next time I have an opportunity, it's easier for me to reach out. And as I'm drawing back my empty hands, I'm saying to myself, oh, that was good. I really like that. Uh, I want to do that again. And so another opportunity comes, and I reach out, and now I'm drawing back my empty hands again. I'm saying, wow, that was awesome. I love seeing the response that those people had. I want to do this again. I want to do this more often. I want to do this in a bigger way. What's happening? A learned behavior is happening in your life. And that's the point here. What Paul's saying is that these people engage in virtuous works and that they learn the blessing of giving because it doesn't come natural. They need exhortation. They need to be encouraged. They need to be shown opportunities. And as they learn to give, they become generous givers. And we know that because of the third phrase. He says that they're ready to distribute. And the idea here is that we become liberal. Amen? <laughs> I knew that'd get your attention. <laughs> I thought you were awake. Uh, it's talking about being liberal at departing. That is to become a good sharer. It's in contrast to what we preached about last week, building bigger barns. Yeah. You know, I can, I can earn it and gain it in order to hoard it, or I can earn it and gain it in order to use it more. There's a big difference there. I need to learn to be a liberal distributor of that which God entrusts to my care. And then the fourth little phrase, willing to communicate, the word comes from a, a root word meaning a sharer or a partner. It means to, to partner up. It means as, as I'm gifted perhaps at earning money or raising money, I might not be as gifted at spending it or using it. So I partner up with somebody who is or has need of the gift that I have of, of raising and earning the money. And that's the idea that he's giving us here. That they have the right attitude about wealth. Don't let it puff you up. Don't put your trust in the wealth. Keep your trust in the living God. And then their activity with it, that they do good. They become rich in good works. They're ready to distribute. They're willing to communicate. And then what does it accomplish? Well, verse 19 tells us what it accomplishes. Two things. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. By the way, under actions, I had a quote I was going to use here. Let me read that before we move on to this third point. 
To lavish wealth on personal luxuries is to abuse it and ourselves. <laughs> on the statue of Joseph Brotherton, a 19th century businessman in England, who left his job at age 36 and focused the rest of his life on Christian ministry, on his uh, statue is this inscription. A man's riches consist not in the amount of his wealth, but in the fewness of his wants. Boy, that is a rich statement. A lot of people measure wealth by how much they have. Start looking at it from, you know, what do I really want? A big difference there. So thirdly, then, the accomplishment of their wealth. By having the right attitude and the right activities, it's going to result in some accomplishment. First of all, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. And in this whole passage, Paul has eternity in view. The idea here is how I manage my wealth and the attitude I have about my wealth, what I do with it, is laying up for me a good foundation at the judgment seat of Christ. Right. Boy, that's so important. We don't focus a lot on the judgment seat of Christ, but, you know, if we could see a, the, the calendar of eternity today, our time on earth would be almost too small to see. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be even impact of that I want to lay up a good foundation I want to be a good steward so that at the judgment seat of Christ the, the Lord of my life is glorified I have some crowns to cast at his feet at some point in time the idea here of this little statement is I need to treasure away a good foundation. That's, that's having an eternal perspective on everything I'm using my wealth for. Laying up that treasure in heaven. And then he says, secondly, laying hold on eternal life. Now that's an interesting phrase right here. Doesn't Paul already say, doesn't Timothy say? He says, Timothy, if you you charge those who are rich in this world and they have the right activities they're going to lay hold on eternal life you mean you can buy eternal life no no that's not what he's saying what is eternal life when was the last time you answered that question what is eternal life <laughs> Sometimes if you ask a young person, what is eternal life? They say, well, it means I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, that's a benefit of having eternal life, but that's not the definition of eternal life. We don't have to wonder either. Jesus gave us the definition in John 17, 4. He said, this is life eternal, that they might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is having a living, knowledgeable relationship with Almighty God right now. Amen. I have eternal life right now, but I'm not in heaven yet. And most of you in here have eternal life right now, but you're not in heaven yet. And what he's saying here is this. 
If we have the right attitude and the right activity with our wealth, what it accomplishes is this. We're going to lay hold on eternal life. We're going to get so in touch with the relationship we have with God that we're going to understand why we have the wealth and we're going to invest it where God wants it invested. That's what he's saying here. We're going to find out what really matters. Sometimes, I remember the message pastor, I don't know how long ago it's been he preached it, but many years ago I think that on reality, the real reality, we're living with such a temporal reality these days in the church. It's just pathetic. We need to live in the real reality. We're here forever. be no end. We need to lay hold on that. That's the idea that we seize that understanding. Here's a, another great quote. To spend life in getting and keeping money is to be poor indeed. To spend it in a liberal use of our means in the cause of God is to be enriched with eternal life, which is life indeed. There is truth and instruction in the inscription on an Italian tombstone that says, what I gave away I saved, what I spent, I used. What I kept, I lost. Pretty interesting. What I gave away, I saved. What I spent, I used. And what I kept, I lost. So the exhortation here from Pastor Timothy is to minister truth to those who have wealth. So they don't become arrogant. They don't make money their God. They do maintain trust in the Lord. And they do good deeds. Becoming skilled givers who partner for ministry. In order to build heavenly treasure. And to keep an eternal perspective on our resources and responsibilities in this present life. To the praise and glory of God. That's what this whole passage is saying. <coughs> There's a great biblical example of this strategic partnership, as I call it. Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Philippians chapter 4. <coughs> is that up on the screen there? Look what Paul writes here to the Philippian believers. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at last your care of me has flourished again, wherein you were all so careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. 
But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's a tremendous passage of scripture. And I would encourage you to, to dig into it some this week. Let me share with you what I consider to be some partnership lessons from this passage. First of all, the Philippians' participation in this partnership for ministry was a great source of joy and encouragement to the Apostle Paul, the one who was laboring in the ministry. And try to, try to equate that to our mission family. You know, it's a great blessing to those who are on the mission field to know that we're here faithfully supporting their work. We become a source of joy and encouragement to them. That's what the church in Philippi was to the Apostle Paul as he went to Thessalonica to take the gospel to them. No other church, by the way, was giving to them. Their support of Paul was not viewed selfishly by Paul. He recognized and acknowledged that he had needs and he saw the gifts that were sent by them would be given to meet those needs and they would have benefit to the giver as well as to themselves. It would lay out treasure for the Philippian believers in heaven. A third lesson here is we see that Paul recognized and acknowledged that his dependence for provision was on God. However, the Apostle Paul recognized that God uses people to make that provision. Don't lose sight of that. The provision that we make to the missionaries is provision that we can make because God makes it for us. Yeah. Fourthly, Paul recognized the support gifts for his ministry were important and that the Philippians had done well, to quote him, in meeting their needs. The partnership was a good thing. And you'll, you'll find that experientially when you partner with ministries to advance the cause of Christ, it's a good thing. Number five, Paul acknowledged that the Philippians had given to meet needs on multiple occasions. They sent once and again, the Bible says here. And that certainly demonstrated a divine love as they sacrificed themselves over an extended period of time. They gave, and they gave, and they gave, and they gave to advance the cause of Christ. Number six, Paul also reminds them that they were the only church having this kind of impact on the ministry by supporting him. And so it's no wonder that Paul opens this letter to the Philippians by saying this in chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Why would that be? Pretty obvious, right? And he went on to recognize their fellowship in the God literally their partnership. Paul viewed the church at Philippi as his ministry partner in reaching the Thessalonians and the others that he, he uh, reached on that particular journey. And then in Philippians 1.4, he says this, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
these people were being prayed for by the Apostle Paul? Well, that's a question. I wonder how many of our mission families are praying for Bluegrass Baptist Church, and maybe particularly for you right now, like their son. We can also see that this concept is further developed in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, when the writer says, but to do good and to communicate, or literally to partner up, forget not, for with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. They have an opportunity to be pleasing to God. So when you talk about having a desire to do something for God, really, uh, what can we do for God that God isn't doing for us? A lot of times we have the idea, oh, I want to do something great for God. No, you won't do anything great for God. God's going to do something great through you. Uh, but here's a way that we can please God by being a good steward of his stuff, managing it well and seeking a partnership to advance the cause of Christ. Number eight on my list, Paul identified the gifts from the Philippians as a blessing not only to himself, but to the Lord. And then number nine, Paul articulated the Lord's response to this partnership in verse 19, where he said, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In other words, because the Philippians allowed God to use them to meet Paul's needs as he ministered in Thessalonica. God would meet their needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. They weren't manipulating God. They were experiencing the blessing of God. What a promise. So here's some questions to, to consider when we think of the Timothy passage and the Philippians passage. What is my attitude about wealth? You know, a lot of people have looked at wealth as something that's evil. No, it isn't evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, not the money itself. Second question, in whom or in what do I have my confidence or dependence? Who are you trusting for tomorrow's provision is kind of the idea there. Number three, how am I using the wealth that God has entrusted to me now? What has my activity been, or has the use of my wealth been? You say, well, I'm not that wealthy. Well, most of us in here have more than most of the rest of the people in the world. Right. How are you using it? Is there some intentionality to how you're using it to follow the principles that you've been learning? I hope so. Number four, what do I think I'm accomplishing with my wealth? You know, we think about the wealth, but what does it accomplish? Sitting in a barn doesn't accomplish much, does it? Number five, am I living with an eternal perspective or a temporal perspective? Is your life all about the temporal things? How, how often during any given day do you think about the eternal things of God as it relates to your life or your stuff? Number six, what do I do on purpose to maintain that perspective? You know, when it comes to giving parents, here's a good thing, a good exercise for you to do as a family or as parents. Uh, each month, take a particular amount of money and set it aside and, and tell your kids or tell yourself and your kids, the only thing we can do with this money is give it away, and we have to give it away by the end of the month. 
can't spend it on ourselves. We've got to give this to somebody that has a need. Do you know what that would accomplish? Everybody in your family is going to start looking around <laughs> to see where their needs are. That's good. But it gets better when your family starts recognizing needs. You want to have a kid overcome the selfish desires they have? Let them start seeing the needs of other people. And then it even gets better as they empty their hands to meet that need. Good exercise. Try it with 10 bucks a month for 100, for 1,000, whatever your capacity is. Challenge him that way. I think you'll find it's easy to give and gets easier. And it gets more delightful all the time. And you might ask yourself this last question, what strategic ministry partnerships have I formed on purpose? I know we've partnered with our church. That might not be all. I would be very careful about the ministries you partner with and make sure there's some accountability so that you're putting God's money where you know it's being used right. Just because somebody says they're a Christian ministry, doesn't mean it's going to be used in a, a way that glorifies and honors God. So what we've seen in this series is we're going to be enjoying the inheritance of God throughout eternity. Revelation 21.7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Think about that. You and I are going to enjoy the riches of God for eternity. We're going to inherit them. We're going to inherit all things, it says there. God wants to bless his children who obey. So we need to manage our abundance to the glory of God. Here's our theological grid. I'll repeat it for us one time. There's a Bible principle with a practical application. God is a God of order, sequence, and priority. Therefore, giving back to God is our first financial priority and focus. Second principle is that God deems the family unit to be the cornerstone of his foundation, the foundation stone of his plan for mankind. So saving or setting aside in order to protect one's family is our second priority. Third principle is God wants our life choices to bring glory to him. Spending, protecting, and preserving our testimony by being timely, honest, and just with our creditors. Fourth principle, God wants his people to help those who are less fortunate. So offerings, being mindful and generous toward the needs of others. And then finally tonight, fifth principle, God wants to bless his people who obey. So abundance, managing our abundance to the glory of God. Let me ask you tonight, what are you going to do with this understanding in light of your responsibility as a stewardship? There are some tools that we've made available to you that you can use to help your understanding, help you really grow spiritually in this area. You see the CR, is that right? CR? QR. QR, QR code. CR for the old folks. <laughs> <laughs> the C and the Q kind of run together. QR code. Uh, if you go to that, you'll find a, a budget, a financial statement, and some other documents that will help you greatly. I can tell you, I've been using a financial statement and a personal budget for all of my adult life. 
And all it does is help me to know where I am, which helps me to make good financial decisions as I come before you. In addition to that tonight, we've added a series of articles that uh, I had a part in writing when I had an organization called Eternal Vision. We developed a document called Treasure Builder. There's actually 15 of these documents. They're a four-page article, and uh, you can access them through that same uh, QR code. Right? And I would encourage you to, to uh, access these and, and read them, learn them. They are rich theologically, and they are very practical. A lot of application for daily living in the day and age in which we're living. There are lessons that are going to help you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know they'll be a help to you. There are a few of them available to, in, in person tonight on the back table as you leave. That is the end of the supply of these that I have at my home. And I thought, let's just bring them in here. And as many people want to take those, they're free. Just pick them up and uh, learn them. They're high quality, so they're meant to be read. Lay them around and let the next person pick it up and read it. And just keep the message moving through life. Why is all this important? 2 Corinthians 5.10. We've been talking about it every message. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be there. If we're saved. We're going to be at the judgment seat someday. And you're not going to be judged there for your sin. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Praise the Lord. That was nailed to the cross. But what you will be judged for, two big categories, service and stewardship. And our goal in teaching this is to help you one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hope all of us hear it. It's going to be a great blessing then. And you can experience the blessing now of doing life God's way, even with your money. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the time and